My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. And we're back. We're back with Cornelius Edwards. Welcome to the Prison Post. Glad to be back, Rich. Glad to and be back. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to have you. And uh, we're back with our Starbucks. Hey. Uh, yes, yes. I, I share. It's tough to go without it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I shared with you, uh, the, our audience last time, that uh, after 21 years, you were one of the my close friends and mentors on the inside, and and you uh, picked me up, or, or we met uh, for Starbucks, and uh, you were one of the first ones uh, that were formerly incarcerated I got to meet back up with, and you gave me a lot of wisdom after I first got out, and uh, the Prison Post is a, is a production of the Crop Organization. It's an organization I work for. I'm the director of communications, and we're over there reimagining reentry. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that reentry isn't working and it hasn't been working, and we're trying to uh, get things on track with Crop Organization, with leadership development, digital literacy training, financial literacy training, B two B sales, uh, putting people to work in the tech industry, workforce development, fair chance hiring. And when I think about you, you've done a little bit of that. You've been successful in reentry. It's going on nine years now. Yes, nine years, Rich. That's a long time. <laughs> nine, probably. nine amazing years. We got one One of our associates, his name is Ron, in our, in our Ready for Life program. He's been out 10, and I spent some time with him. But other than that, I really haven't known any other formerly incarcerated sentenced people sentenced to life that uh, have been out that long. And, you know, it's a breath of fresh air, not only for me, but for our audience, to, to see, hey, here's a guy who has never gone back. In our program, nobody's ever recidivated. Here's a guy who's never gone back. There's not even uh, any possibility of that. I mean, there's always a possibility, but there's, there's, there's nothing in the lifestyle and your thinking that would ever lead to that. And um, so it, it inspires hope to families and loved ones and even those who may be on the inside watching our podcast to know, hey, you can stay free whether it's not just a year or three years. And I know, I know that CDCR does all their measurements based on three years and 52% go back, but here's somebody nine years, never gone back. It's not even possible. How does that feel today to, to have been here nine years? Wow, Rich. Uh, to, to put it in, into words uh, is a really tough thing to do. But, but what I will say is this. Uh, the first five years, uh, being on parole, what you try to do is you, you try to stay within those parameters mm-hmm. uh, because there's so much you want to do that you can't. Uh, and that five years can sometimes slow down a little bit. Right. But after that, time just flies. Yeah, after parole, yeah. you're yeah. really free, right? Yeah, yeah, you're really free. You're really free, and time flies, uh, literally. It, you know, before you know it, you know, uh, a year has passed, and you're trying to figure out where, where did the year go. You know, one of the things that I do— a lot of uh, is, and thanks to social media, is I take pictures of everything, every right. place I go, whatever I do, because I want to remember what I did that year. I want to remember what I did that month. Yeah, and uh, and they come up on your memories. They do. <laughs> <laughs> they really do. You know, where's one place that you've been that it's just where you were there? You just thought, man, I never thought I'd be here, but here I am. Paris. Paris, France. Paris, France. Not Paris, California. Not Paris, California. <laughs> Paris, France. I was. Uh, uh, I was in Paris, France, uh, after my wife and I married. Uh, we, uh, one of my one of my daughters, uh, I am, and I, you know, I have four, 
four daughters and one granddaughter, one biological, and three are bonuses, uh, and then my granddaughter awesome. by, my, by my oldest uh, daughter. Uh, and uh, they're all professionals. Uh, my oldest uh, is a nurse practitioner. Uh, Jasmine under her, she is an administrator for the state or for the city of Long Beach. Uh, the one under her is a flight attendant, so awesome. we basically fly, fly for free. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then under her, Jennifer. Jennifer is a, a practicing chef, uh, and she lives home with us. Uh, aside from, uh, aside from that, however, I, I'm, I'm sharing that with you to say, uh, because of uh, our position with with our children, uh, we're able to travel a lot. That's awesome. Know? Yeah, we can travel a lot. You know, and. Uh, we spend some money uh, on flights, but not as much as a normal person would. You know, uh, most of our money is spent on hotels and and, <laughs> and, 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 and restaurants and, and things like that. But but just having that opportunity after parole uh, was uh, is what I what I dreamed of. You know, for so many years, you know, you you sit and you. I had a sub- subscription to National Geographic. You know for 20 years you know so yeah <laughs> I remember yeah, one of those yeah, and I would pass them on to someone else after I read them yep. uh, but I would literally see all the things that I wanted to do you know uh, uh, I would see someone going on a bike ride through Nepal you know I'd see you know two uh, uh, a couple in France uh, in the south of France in the vineyards and another one in Paris and and then in London and and New York and all of these different places, and the only thing I wanted to do was was I wanted to travel, you yeah. know. So in my heart of hearts, I knew that that I had something that I needed to do uh, personally, which is why I I I opted out of going back into the institutions and and doing uh, more than I than I was at the time, uh, because I needed to live a little. You know, yeah. and that that four years after parole, I I did some living rich. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't think anybody would disagree with you after 26 years yeah. there that you need to live a little. Yeah, I did some living. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. What was the highlight of Paris? The highlight of Paris. The highlight of Paris was uh, we we had two hotels. One uh, was. Uh, I mean, I'm sure the highlight, I'm sure one of the highlights was just being with your wife in Paris. That was the highlight of it all. (laughs) That's the highlight of all. And and particularly when you're you're in love, you know, when you're in love. And and I love my wife. My wife is absolutely phenomenal. I saw some of the pictures on Facebook. You guys, (laughs) She's phenomenal, you know, and and, and it was a godsend. You know, I wasn't looking for anybody. After I, you know, after my divorce, I was basically just looking to, you know, have a Corvette, live on the beach and, and get me a dog and, and just do me for a while. You know, unfortunately, God said, no, that's not, that's not, that's not the plan. This okay. is the plan, you know, and he just set her right there. And I fell in love the minute I met her, you know, so. Uh, um, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's, 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 a, I, that's another podcast, Rich. Well, yeah, well <laughs> and, and literally a whole podcast, you know, so, uh, but uh, 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 having her, uh, in Paris uh, was was phenomenal, but we're both jazz uh, jazz advocate. I mean, we just love jazz, and no matter and and yeah. in Paris, there's just old jazz, and we had this room uh, that was probably two blocks from the Eiffel Tower, and it was raining uh, because it was in November, I believe, uh, it, late October, early November, right. and it was raining. Uh, 
uh, and we could see the lights in the Eiffel Tower, uh, and I can hear the jazz playing. And, and, and you know what, Rich, that was a moment, that was a moment, you know, all these years I, I sat in a cell listening to jazz, you know, waiting for jazz tracks to come on in Catalina Island because someone was opening up. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, I was, and I've been to Catalina Island too for four days. That's where we're going for our honeymoon. <laughs> Amazing. You're going to love it, Rich. All right. Yeah. That's uh, jazz tracks is in October. Well, you know, I don't know if they're going to have it this year, but we'll talk more about it. But, uh, uh, just being able to do that and and relax at midnight. Because I woke up in the middle of the night, and I'm laying there with my wife, and I'm listening to this jazz, and it's all, you know, uh, Blue Note, you know. It's, it's, it's old school jazz, and I'm listening to it, and I'm looking at the lights of the Eiffel Tower, and I'm saying, oh, my God, man. you're here. You're actually here. That's man. living. Yeah. So yeah, that was my that was my highlight of Paris. On the on the that's awesome. <laughs> uh, that's beautiful. On the on the flip side of that, do you ever think back to the, the 26 years there? And you know, I ask this question because I'm often asked, you know, do that was a long time there. You know, you got seven thousand three hundred something days for me. You know, the uh, 21 years. Do you ever re reflect back? And you know, they they want to know if there was you know the the trauma uh, experience and and a lot of times I say, I'm so focused on the present and the now and being in the moment and building a future and career and family that I don't take it enough time to reflect back. And if I did miss anything, I miss some of my friends there. And I miss maybe some all the time I had to read and to pray and to uh, connect with God and, 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 and the, in his word or um, I mean, I definitely don't miss the environment or the concrete or the cells <laughs> or the cages or the madness or the survival feeling or the. Any of those types of uh, things, but um, uh, it was there that I built some of the best friendships of my life. I mean, Jason Bryant was one of them, and and Ted Gray, and and you, and um, a lot of our friends that we know. You know, I talked to Wade Taylor yesterday, and he's like, <laughs> "I saw Cornelius on part one of your show," and uh, you have a connection with him, and and um, but there, it was there that all that's all we had. Yeah. And I'll say this before I before I turn it over to you to ask the question. People ask me, "Do you ever have dreams about being back there?" And what I say is, is that I, I remember having dreams in there of being free. And then I'd wake up and I'd <laughs> open my eyes to the wall, a concrete wall. And a couple of times I had dreams that I woke up, I, that I was there. And then I woke up and I was out here. And there's only been twice, actually. But I don't really think back about it in a, in a negative way. But I know that it was, I don't fully comprehend how long it was. And, um, and I don't need to. No, no, and I don't need to. No. Um, but life is good out here. Yeah, yeah. it's good to be with you, brother. <laughs> good to be with you. Rich. What about you? I don't dream a lot, Rich. Uh, uh, why that is, I, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but and when I, when I do have a dream, uh, sometimes it's it's I don't dream about prison. You know, uh, sometimes when I do dream, I'm I'm caught in a dream where I'm trying to run. And I can't, you know, or I'm trying to do something and, and I can't because something is pulling me. Uh, a gravity or something is pulling me. Those are the kinds of dreams I have. Uh, with regards to prison, uh, I've thought about going back in several times. In fact, Sam Lewis and I, he's, he's like my little brother, you know, and, and I love him. I, and, and I love the work he's doing. He's, he's phenomenal, man. He's been on the prison and, post, too. Yeah, well, he's phenomenal. He is, and from day one, he, when he stepped out, you know, uh, he kept pushing, he kept pushing forward, you know, and, and, and today you could see the fruit of his labor. Uh, uh, and, 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 uh, 
the things that I miss uh, in prison, you know, are relationships like that. You know, one, one of the things that we can say about, about our programs was that it created a camaraderie mm-hmm. because it all gave us a mission. Uh, it gave us all a mission. It gave us a, an assignment, something that we could focus on. Uh, and, and I think when I do think about, about prison or going back, because I don't dream, I think about that part of it, mm-hmm. about going back and, and being able to provide something uh, to help someone uh, come home. Because yep. that's that's what that's what we did. That's all we knew. You know, we lived and breathed, and and breathed going home. You know, that was you know. And what do we need to do to get there? Yeah. You know, so if we had to be innovative about it, whatever it is we did, we did with that in mind. Okay, what do we need to do? This is what we need to do. Okay, they're not going to give it to us. Let's create it. That's right. Okay. So so speaking of that, talking about creating it, um, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the prison post is because. To me, you're one of the founding fathers of creating groups, rehabilitative program, restorative programming, transformative groups that will prepare us for freedom, especially the niche population of those sentenced to life who at one time had no hope. You yourself know that uh, you you had three dates that were taken under Gray Davis's term. Gray Davis said the only way a life will ever leave prison is in a pine box. And he took three of your dates. And Schwarzenegger uh, took two of your dates. I mean, the, the, the commissioners that are appointed by the governor are saying, you're ready to go home. And then they find you suitable for, for release. It goes up to his desk. And they say, and he says, no, uh, I don't think so. And takes it away. And then you get that news back. And um, finally, the sixth time. And Schwarzenegger really was the one who opened up a crack of light for us. He did. But Cornelius, I remember you as a trailblazer, a leader. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, and I'm not blowing any smoke or anything like that, but I, I consider you like legendary because I can think back and who else was the one having the ideas to start parole readiness groups or, or BPH prep groups or the or t- teaching us to create a portfolio, to go in there with a portfolio that is presentable with a relapse prevention plan with the list of your triggers, with remorse letters, with, um, uh, you know, your employment letters, with, with letters of support, and order it like this. I never even heard it. I never heard it uh, t- t- 12 years. Uh, my first 12 years, maybe because of the despair of people not going home. But here comes this guy. He creates a group called Avatar. And I'd love to talk about Avatar. But first, even before that, in the mid-2000s, last, in our last episode, we talked about you creating a literacy plan in the 90s when when prison was really um, rocking and rolling and to create a, a literacy program with 500 people who are now getting excited about getting their GEDs. We know that 9% of people who get GEDs recidivate, and the numbers are low, 1.6% for those with an AA degree, and some 0.00002% of those with a bachelor's degree. So education matters. So you, you created a literacy program. No one told you what to do. You just wanted to do it, and uh, you had an opportunity and then you, the mid-2000s, when nobody else was doing this, you created a lifer support group. So would you talk about that, and then we'll go into the avatar. Well, lifer support group, um, the, the reason uh, for the lifer support group uh, was, and keep in mind, uh, with, uh, with the literacy program, the literacy program taught me how to organize men uh, in prison, literally. You know, And I don't know if you remember Finney Hampton. I do. Uh, Finney Hampton. Bishop. Bishop Finney Hampton. Jose Hay. Uh, yep. These are all guys that we we yeah, that the, when the literacy program now Wesley grew, 
and Wesley at now Wesley. <laughs> all right. Now, these are all guys that when the literacy program was created, we had to create a, a council. You know, and in this council, uh, we had provisional chairman uh, and then we had an executive body, you know, and uh, the provisional chairman are the ones who basically ran the program. So there was a, at some point when you get programs that big, there's going to be divisiveness. There's going to be uh, challenges. There's going to be things uh, that that will interrupt the progress of the program because of politics. Yeah. And uh, antisocial prison politics. Yeah. A and, lot of people don't know there's segregation is still uh, alive and well it's alive and in well. there, like the it's 50s and, and 60s. Well. And, and when you get that many people together from all ethnicities working towards an education, you it's, know, it's going to happen, you know, and, and because it was, it was a program on such a large scale, we needed to be able to control it because we didn't need that to interfere with the job that we were trying Absolutely. to do. Uh, so that was the lesson from that program. That was one of the lessons from that program. Uh, so when I left there and, I, and we opened up Pleasant Valley, uh, I became, I got involved with the Men's Advisory Council. Uh, I was chairman of the Men's Advisory Council, but doing that, that allowed me to, to really kind of focus on helping establish the yard so that it was equitable, you know, and, and, and we wouldn't have the problems that we would normally have, and we had them anyway. Some things you can't get away from in prison, mm -hmm. and violence is one of them. Uh, now, uh, in the process, I was getting ready for my initial board hearing. Uh, and getting ready for my initial board hearing, thinking the way I do, I don't want to go in there and just sit down and you just... Hope it happens. Yeah, yeah. you tell me, well, you know, what have you done to become suitable? And I don't even know what suitability is. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, I needed to know what was it that I needed to be suitable. When I walked in there, I wanted to talk about suitability because uh, because the, uh, the prisoner's life prisoner's handbook and the division two stated in clear language what it was, what requirements you had to meet in order to become suitable. And you're and talking about division two, title 15, title 15, I mean, everybody goes to prison, you get a book in your cell the first time, or maybe at reception called a title 15. It has all the rules of here's what's allowed, here's what's not allowed, here's what you get in trouble for, blah, blah, blah. And what people don't know about is there's a division two. For the BPH. Right? Yeah. For and it lays out how to go home. How to go home. And yeah. I, I, I don't cut you off, but a lot of family members with incarcerated loved ones don't know this book exists. Most people in prison don't know this book exists. I've only seen the book one time. It's hard to get, right? But you can order it. You can get it. You can get it. And really, it lays it out. And now, now, there's a division, too, and there's also the Life Prisoner's Handbook. They kind of go, they go hand in hand. And because of, of laws that were established uh, for life prisoners uh, that were basically fought for, uh, they're in the Life Prisoner's Handbook. Often, the, the Division Two will refer to the Life Prisoner's Handbook mm -hmm. because that's where the actual law uh, is is that that supports mm -hmm. the rules that they have in place. So once I started looking at the division two and the requirements for for being found suitable, what I learned was that at my initial hearing, I was automatically supposed to be found suitable, provided I didn't do anything crazy. And then they were supposed to set my parole date. And based on that, I mean, they can set it five years, 10 years, whatever they want to do. But I would go to progress hearings every year, every two years after that. And they would give me a list of things to accomplish before 
I could actually go home. That never happened. Mm-hmm. So when I walked into the parole, when I walked into the parole board, this is what was going through my mind. Okay, you're going to find me suitable, and then you're going to tell me what it is I need to do in order to actually go home. That never happened. They disregarded it. So uh, I'm going to rewind for just a second. Go ahead. Uh, in getting ready, uh, I learned that no one knew what we needed to do to go home. Mm-hmm. No one. I mean, I would talk to old lifers, and, and they would say, well, you know, I heard of the Life Prisoner's Handbook, but, you know, uh, if you read it, they'll tell you, you know, well, what it is you need to do and, and Division Two, but they ain't let nobody go home, you know. And and that was the attitude, you know, nobody was going home. You know, Gray Davis was, was a, uh, you know, he was a governor, and, and, and the rule was if you leave, you're going to leave in a pine box. And and that was unacceptable to me. That was just not, it was not acceptable. You know, if if the rules say, you're supposed to set my term and tell me what it is I need to, to do to go home, then that's what we should be going by. Now, what what is it that I have to do that I have to do in order to make that happen? So because I knew that there were a lot of people who didn't know, I said, you know what? We need to figure out how this works. And the only way that we can do that is to start communicating. We have to we, we have to create a group where we can invite people in so that someone other than us can start taking a serious look at why we're not going home. Because someday we will go home. Yep. You know, and, and the idea behind the Life, Prisoners, the, the, the Life Prisoners Support Group in Pleasant Valley was to create a bridge between Life Prisoners and the community to say, okay, eventually we're coming home. How do you want us to come home? We want to come home, and we want to, you know, we want to integrate ourselves into your community. We want to be upstanding citizens. We know we screwed up, but we're trying to fix that right now. Uh, how can we? How can we communicate what it is that you want from us? So we invited clergymen, and we, we invited senator, we invited uh, councilmen, and we invited, you know, people from the community, and to sit down and have these conversations. Uh, lo and behold, uh, I ended up transferring again. Uh, the Life Prisoner Support Group, I believe, kept going. I, I, uh, I don't know how far it went because once I left uh, and went to Soledad, uh, uh, things changed a little bit. But in the back of my head, that program, I knew the necessity for that program. And there was probably a fire or buzz because people, you go there and you're like, oh, there's Life and Support Group, so I'm going. You know, yeah. if there's something for a liver, I'm going. And then you get there, and then all of a sudden you're getting all this new information. You're like, where are you getting that? Let me get that. There's a buzz. People get it, learn, start learning, get informed, and, uh, and hope is created. And, 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 and that is incentive to truly transform. Hey, I can't stay this way. What, what is the community saying I need? Uh, what do I want? Uh, education, vocation, any type, of, any type of training to prepare myself for freedom, even though it could be 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. And, and the beauty of it, Rich, is all of that was available. You know, all of the training, all of the education, it, it was all available, you know. Uh, one thing about C- CDCR, you know, there's, there's plenty of room, uh, plenty, there's, there are enough educational programs there for you to learn something, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, learning what you don't want to learn is a good thing. Yeah. And I think we talked a little bit about that the last time. You know, but, but once I got to, to uh, uh, Soledad, you know, I, I knew at that point what it would take to get found suitable. So I really started focusing on, on making sure that, that, that I stayed out of trouble, 
making sure that uh, 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 I, I, I participate in programs that were conducive to addressing my past. And because when you go into the, to, to the Board of Parole hearings, they're looking at, number one, why, you, why you're there, and number two, what led up to you getting there. Right. right? And you need to be able to address all of it. Right. Because if, if you don't, you're never going to go home. That's so, just period. That, that that was the rule. So if you had anger issues and you don't come with anger management, uh, you, you, you come back in three years. Come back in three years. years. You haven't addressed it. You know. Right. You know well, well, what do I do? I don't know. You figure out what to do. You know. Uh, I'm sure there's a program in there somewhere. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the sad part about it is that some had had issues uh, that they needed to address, and there were no programs. Right. Uh, yeah. There, there were no. Now they would tell you to go. Well, you know what? You need to create a relapse prevention plan. You know. And where do I get a relapse prevention plan from? Who, who, there's no place in here that teaches me how to write a relapse prevention plan. So there are some who, who go to board that are informed, hey, um, go, go take anger management. Well, there's no anger management group, so I guess I'm just going to do nothing. But on the other hand, there are others like yourself who said, there's no anger management here. Let me go create one. Exactly. Right. There's no, I've never heard relapse prevention plan. So let me have, let me go to this library or let me have a, love, a loved one go on the internet Find out what that is. Let me find uh, 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 get get some information here. Let me write one. Let me create one, and then let me spread it to this whole population exactly. here. I took it a little further than that, Rich. I actually went and ordered the books from Terrence Gorski. You know, he is a relapse prevention prevention guru, and I ordered all of his material and I studied it. And I said, okay, now let me create a program. But I'm going to get into that in just a moment. Go for it. Because because what I needed to do. At, I was, I was being a little selfish. You know, I got involved in some programs, but it was all because I needed to make sure I was prepared to go to the Board of Parole hearings. You know, and, and uh, I needed to prove to myself that I could get found suitable. And not only did I want to prove to myself, but because I had such hope in getting found suitable, when you share this you know, with different people, different individuals, they look at you like, hey, you ain't going nowhere. You know, they ain't finding nobody suitable. Yeah. And that and that was and, and, and that was the atmosphere, you know, yeah. and I needed to prove it to me. But I also wanted to show other people that, yes, you can get found suitable in spite of everything else that you think you can get found suitable. I don't care how many shoot terms you've done. I don't care. Uh, whatever it is you've done is fine. The key is to address them. So the first time I went to the Board of Parole hearings and got found suitable, Rich, was 2003. And when I got found suitable, nobody believed that I would get found suitable. I didn't. Uh, uh, well, I, I believed I would get found suitable because I kept going. But when they came back, it was set, it, it lifted this burden off my uh, off my shoulders because you know every time I go to the board uh, to to uh, for instance my initial hearings or or after my initial I go to a to a uh, progress uh, to a progress hearing uh, they'd say well you know. Uh, you're close. You're really close, but you know you you need to address that. There's still some issues you need to address, you know. Uh, and and then you'd have one commissioner right. say, you know, I probably would have found you suitable today, but un- but because of this, you know. And those are the things that I would key in on. I would lock in on those things, Rich. I mean, literally. If, of if, course. And if they if you told me that you know what, you know, you had an anger issue, you know, or or because you sold drugs, you know, you, you there's something about you and, and communities where you just don't care about communities. Well, what I'm going to do is find something to combat that. Find something that says, okay, you know what? I agree. I, I screwed up. 
Yes, I was destroying communities. Yes, you know what? I was. Uh, I used alcohol or drugs or whatever it is. Whatever it is, yes, I did that. But this is what I've done to remedy that. Then and now. Then and now. Then and now. And as long as you address those things, they can't constantly bring them up. Eventually, they ran out of stuff with me. Mm-hmm. When they ran out of stuff, they had to find me suitable. You know? And then once they found me suitable, I think some found me suitable and knew that the governor would take it. In fact, the first time I got found suitable, he, he said, you know, you got a long way to go. You know, he said, you know, you got past this part. He said, but you have a long way to go. And I said, you know what, it's okay, you know. I, I, uh, one step at a time, you know. I need, I need to get over one hurdle at a time. Uh, and that was the first time I got found suitable. And after that, uh, I started having conversations with, uh, with, 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 with friends and and, and, and comrades and people who, who were in the same boat that I was in, you know, uh, and they were asking, man, what did you do, man? You know, you got found suitable, you know, and you only have this amount of time, man. You know, I've been locked up 30 years and I can't get found suitable. What did you do, you know? And uh, I had created a portfolio. Uh, I, that's where the portfolio thing came from. I created a portfolio and I, I actually had it, had it divided into sections, you know. Uh, uh, every program I've taken, uh, my support letters, uh, job offers, I had, uh, I had everything, you know, my, my psych reports, I had everything just lined up. So if they had a question, I could go right to it and pull it out and give it to them. Yeah. You know, I would even make copies of them and send them to them beforehand. I can't and, say how profound that is because you, yours was the first one that I ever saw. And the immediate I saw it, I said, man, why didn't I think of that? I need one of those. I still have mine to this day. I, I have mine, Rich. I almost <laughs> bought it with me, you know, but, but, but the thing is, is that we all needed them, yeah. you know. And I realized that soon after that, after having these conversations, talking with people, you know, and talking and, and developing these relationships with, you know, with, with and I, and they're all family, all, everyone that I'm, that I'm talking about. And even Bert, Bert Cole, you know, he, yeah. he would come over and sit next to my bunk and say, man, what do I need to do, man? Yeah, Bert and, Cole, yeah, trailblazer. He, yeah, yeah. And he would sit down, man, and I would show him, this is the portfolio, man. And he'd, he'd go get it, he'd, he'd get a portfolio. He'd come over, he said, I ordered my portfolio. I said, okay, come on over. We'd sit down on my bunk him and too. I would walk him through it. Yep. Bill Sizemore, another one. You know, hey, what did you do? This is what I did. He'd come over. So... I realized the importance of the portfolio, but more than anything else, we had to understand what it was we needed to do right. in order to get found suitable. And after I got found suitable that time, getting found suitable wasn't, wasn't, wasn't the hardest thing to do anymore because mm-hmm. I went back five times after that and got found suitable. You know, now, uh, once I got found suitable, I knew what it was we needed to do to get found suitable, but I needed to be able to share that with everyone. I needed to be able to put that in a package that says, listen, man, this is what I did. All right. And now, you know, because I did it doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody else. No, I mean, but, you can have a beautiful packet, but a, but a wicked heart. And exactly. If, and if, you're, if, if your heart and your internal transformation isn't there, even the beautiful packet ain't going to do it. No, because they'll see right through it. Right. They'll see right through it. You know, you, you go and have somebody write you this amazing laudatory chronicle about places you've volunteered and things you've done, you know, and, and the bottom line is you haven't done any of it. If they ask you about any of it, you know, you're done. You know, if, uh, if they tell you, you know, to create a relapse plan and you go ask someone else to write the relapse plan and they start talking about triggers and you don't know anything about triggers, guess what's going to happen? They're going to slap you. You know, so uh, uh, the the... the the portfolio is really for you to recreate yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really about you saying, okay, this is, this is who I was. 
and this is who I am now. And that's what the portfolio was. Uh, that's what the portfolio is today. That's right. Yeah. And that's, you know, because you needed to recreate yourself. And it's one thing for me to tell you. Because I can tell you anything I want. Right. You know, but when I walk into a parole board hearing and I show it to you on paper, now it's a whole new ballpark. Because I have professionals signing off saying, this is what he's done. This is how he's responded to this. This is what he's completed, and he's done well in interactive groups and da 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 da, da and just going. So, having that, uh, having that on paper, uh, is more powerful than than words. It's more powerful than anything. Uh, and uh, while in Soledad, uh, you know, I was chairman of Fathers Behind Bars. That was another. You know, uh, uh, another program that I was really, really, really crazy about, you know, because we were able, that. yeah, we were able to really kind of reach out to fathers and help fathers become better fathers in prison, you know, and that was a tough thing to do because some fathers really thought that, you know, they were the worst thing ever, you know, yeah. and they couldn't be further from the truth. You know, one thing about kids, they think their dads are the most amazing people in the world, no right. matter what you've done. Right. <laughs> you know, so, so there were, so were these, these groups that were popping up, like, the AVP, the Alternatives to Violence Project, where you can ha have your violence addressed. Mm -hmm. The Fathers Behind Bars, where you could learn what it really means to be a dad. Uh, the uh, What else was available? The Impact Program, yeah. where you could see the impact of crime. But let's talk about Avatar. I see that you brought uh, <laughs> that you brought uh, the old bylaws. I actually, today. I actually to, have the to, original bylaws. To be know? to have what they used to call an ill tag group, an inmate led <laughs> leisure activity group in prison. You have to have bylaws, and they have to get approved by the, the state, uh, yes. by, by the administration there, to be able to get time and space to run your group. A lot of people think all these groups are created by the state. In fact, the majority of groups, I'd say 95% of groups, are created by us, for, for us. us. And, and they're guys like you who take the time to put these together, and then they got to be signed off on. Yeah. So you came to create Avatar, which is where I consider you legendary, the first group that addressed everything that a, what a lifer would need to go home. Yes. So talk about Avatar. How'd that come about? Oh, wow. Now, Avatar. Avatar, we initially started Avatar. I, don't, I didn't mention this the last time, Rich, but while in PIA, uh, the state had promoted what they call an inmate employability program. Uh, the inmate employability program, I was the clerk for the inmate employee. Not, not only was I the clerk, I was the trainer. I was... Uh, Char Charlie Walker was uh, the spokesperson, but I did all the training. I would provide the employment videos. Uh, I would I would provide. I would sit in the room. You'd you'd sit with me for about two or three hours. Uh, we'd watch videos. We'd exchange some dialogue. Uh, we'd put together help you put together a resume based on the skills you you've developed in PIA. And then we you know we give you some direction uh, to find employment. Now, uh, in doing that, I dealt with more lifers than anything because we had more lifers coming out coming out to uh, uh, PIA than any place else. And if you could bring the mic a little closer. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, we had more lifers uh, uh, coming out to PIA than any place else. So what I found then was that uh, every time someone would come back from the board, board, board of parole hearings, you know, they would, hey, 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 Tone, let me talk to you for a minute, you know. They told me to create a relapse prevention plan, man, you know. Uh, and man, I don't know how to create a relapse prevention plan. I said, well, I created one, but it's, you know, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a generic one and I, I can you know, show you how to create one for yourself. And, uh, that was okay for a little while. Uh, and then 
a light came on, Rich. Uh, a light came on. The light said, you know what? You need to help these guys create a, re- a real relapse prevention plan. That was from you God, know? man. Yeah, that's, you know, because I knew how, you know. And uh, uh, I ordered uh, uh, I ordered the program. I ordered the books from Terrence Gorski. Uh, and Sam and I both, uh, we, we went through it. Uh, we went through it with a fine-tooth comb, you know. And then we started talking about a program. You know, because we started teaching it. Avatar actually started in East Dorm. Uh, and we started teaching it, uh, going over things with the, uh, with, the, uh, with the relapse prevention plan. But at the same time, we, we still needed to do board prep. So we were bringing in attorneys. We're, we're bringing in uh, Katie Gilbert, uh, Rutledge. Katira uh, Rutledge. Uh, Katira Rutledge, you know, uh, her, her and her husband, you know, uh, 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 and a few other prominent att- uh, BPH attorneys at the time, we would bring them in. Carbone. I don't uh, know if he came yeah, in. Yeah, Carbone came in, too. He came in, too. But we, we would bring them in. And the idea was to have a conversation about BPH prep, but also let's talk about this this relapse prevention plan, you know, and how important it is, you know. And that's where it started. Uh, we'd have them come out to East Dorm. Uh, and then after a while, we said, you know what? Uh, uh, Sam and I... Uh, Sam, myself, and William Sizemore, uh, we needed someone over at Central. So we found Lalo. <laughs> and Lalo, Lalo's amazing. Shout out to Lalo, man. Yeah. Yep. He, Lalo is absolutely amazing. You know, Mr. Rambo. <laughs> Rambao. Yeah, Rambao. You know? oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we, uh, Humberto. Yes, yeah, that's, that's yeah. my guy, man. You know, I actually was, I was in San, San Diego a couple months ago, and, I, and I, I, I wanted to go by and see him, but it was my wife's. Uh, my my wife's birthday, and you know when uh, when I'm with her, man, it's really uh, it was really about her, you know. So I couldn't uh, visit as much as I would have liked to. I want to say something about Lalo real quick. You got a six foot five Mexican guy, yeah, and uh, a nice guy, <laughs> great guy athlete. You ever want to know? Yeah, and and yeah. and I never saw Bert was the you and Bert and Sam were the first ones to ever go home. But I never saw a Mexican get a date, and Lalo <laughs> was the first. Was he? Yeah, oh. that I ever saw. Yeah. yeah. That I ever saw. And Lalo, he he comes back. We're in your avatar group, and he comes and speaks to us. And we're just, you know, at the time, you know, life was still. The, the window had barely cracked. There's only, I only know, five or six guys that are ever that are getting these dates. And he was the first Mexican. And I'm saying, like, you know, just a few years earlier, there wasn't even the possibility. And now there's a possibility. And here's this first guy. Yeah. And I remember him coming back. And he had already had a couple denials, I think. And I remember him saying that I think his lawyer was Katira Rutledge, but I'm not sure. Yeah. But she but he said that she told him, do you want to be right or do you want to go home? Yeah. Do you want to be right or do you want to go home? Now, if you want to be right, we can go in there and fight. Yeah. And we'll get denials for the next five, ten years. But if you want to go home, you need to, you know, and, and she laid it out. Basically, the message was, are you willing to fall on your sword? Basically, what you said, own your stuff, own, own your, your contribution, take responsibility. take responsibility. You got to do it one time. And, and, and it ought to be a way of being anyways, but you need to go in there and follow your sword. Not, you know, I did this because he did this. And if he would have never pulled a gun, then I wouldn't have pulled a gun or, or whatever. Forget about what everybody else did. What did you do? Well, well, just keep, keep in mind, Rich, that, you know, for years we, we had been going to court, you know. And, and, and once again, it, this, we didn't do it. We did it as a group without saying we were a group uh, because, you know, every law, uh, every case that was won in court, for lifers 
was won for all of us. Yeah. It wasn't won for one specific guy. You know, if he won, then we used that case when we went back. And if we got denied, we used that case and we got in court. And that's how we got home. Yeah. And that's how we got at least back to the Board of Parole hearings, you know, so we could start over again. Uh, so so uh, taking responsibility was quoted by judges, is that if you take responsibility for what you've done, the bottom line is we're not, the, the board isn't there to retry you. No. The, the, the case has already been tried. Uh, the only thing you're there to do is take responsibility for what you've done, and prove to us that never it's likely gonna, not never going to happen again. Yeah, in reality, again. they're stewards of yeah. the community. Yeah, so so uh, that was our job. Our job was to do that part. And if you started out not taking responsibility, your hearing was over before it even started. That's it. Yeah, you know. So so uh, back back with the Avatar. Uh, once we uh, once we got Lalo on board, you know, and, I, and Lalo's that's my guy, man. I hate I didn't get to see him. I keep thinking about that. Uh, but, but once we got Lalo on board. Uh, we got to have him on the show now. Yeah, <laughs> Central was Lalo. Yeah, Central was open for us. It was like because he was our he, he was, was our guy. central guy. He was he was the, the head. He was the clerk. He you know he knew all the captains. You know mm-hmm. whatever we needed to get signed. It was a hey, Lalo. Okay, look look we need to get a meeting with it. And Lalo made it happen. Yeah, a little know? juice. Yeah, he had Lalo had juice. You know, and that and that's the thing about programs. You know, that was my another one of my lessons that you can't close yourself off. You have to invite other resources in because that's the only way you're going to be successful. Exactly. You know, and in creating these programs, these were lessons that I picked up. And the biggest lesson I picked up is when when I started writing the bylaws, once I wrote them, I would send them over to Sam. Sam would look at them. Uh, I'd send them to uh, Bill Sizemore. He'd look at them. And they'd, hey, you know, I don't know, man. Maybe we should change this. And then Put we, that up yeah, we, we would critique it. Uh, we, we would critique it together. Uh, and, and actually, there's a signature sheet on the back with all of our original signatures. Yeah, Yeah, they have to be signed off on. Yeah, and this is all the wardens and associate wardens. And this is myself, William Sizemore, Lalo, uh, and Sam. Wow. Yeah, so, and... And And Heinley. And Heinley. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that was our guy. So, but but in creating this program, what I wanted, what, what we wanted to get away from, and I specifically wanted to get away from, was the politics. Yeah was the politics. And the only way to keep politics out of it was to create a steering committee, not an executive body. Executive bodies fought all the time. You know, you, you know, you had mm-hmm. the secretary, the vice chair, you know, all the way down control. to sergeant of the arms, sergeant of arms, you know, and everybody was always battling, going back and forth. I didn't want that to happen. Yeah. I wanted four guys to control everything in the program. And those four guys would be first chair, second chair, third chair, and fourth chair. Mm-hmm. And with that system, there were no politics. There were no politics. Yeah. Because once we created relapse prevention, it followed, what followed it was post-incarceration syndrome. In order for you to complete any part of post-PICS, post-incarceration syndrome, you had to have written a relapse prevention plan. So we, so let's, let's yeah. now that you brought up PICS, uh, uh, post-incarceration, um, of course, post-incarceration syndrome, relapse prevention plan, in about five minutes or so, would you unpack the five, four or five components of the Avatar program for the audience to see? Like, here, here's what we had available. And basically, they meet the needs for parole readiness. Yes. Uh, so, first of all, we had the relapse prevention. Relapse prevention, what we did is we created a relapse council. 
Relapse Council was comprised of, of approximately 15 to 20 prisoners who had completed accredited drug and alcohol counseling programs because the idea was to sit down with every individual that participated in our program, help them create a relapse prevention program that was designed just for them, not some generic relapse prevention plan, but a relapse plan that was for them, whatever their circumstances were, whether it was drugs, whether it was women, whether it was whatever it was, we wanted to have a relapse prevention plan for you. And what that did was once you've addressed that, now we can get into PICS. PICS, post-incarceration syndrome. Post-incarceration syndrome was, was, designed, was designed to help to help keep us out of prison once we got there. But it was also designed to help us figure out what we needed to shed going home. Uh, because you know, one of the things uh, in post-incarceration syndrome that, that really kind of uh, resonated with me was institutional personality traits. Uh, institutional personality traits were responsible for probably 60% of the recidivism rate. And that's basically developing a trait in prison uh, that you take home with you that's responsible for bringing you back. Now, if you recall in the 90s and 2000s, the recidivism rate was at an all-time high. It was a revolving door. But most of those who were coming back were coming back because they had developed something in prison that was responsible for bringing them right back to prison. You know, your attitude. You know, I got this hard attitude, you know. Uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll just give you an example. And I used to talk about this, you know, during, 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 during some of our presentations. You know, you get a guy, you know, that goes home. Uh, uh, he, he paroles from a level three or, or sometimes a level four. You know, depending, you know, uh, and he pros from a level four and level four, they're at war. Literally, you know, every race is at war. You have the whites and the blacks, the Latinos and the blacks, uh, the blacks and the whites, you know, the border brothers and and, and, and Southsiders. You know, it's it's you know, it's just there's always a bunch of uh, uh, there's always a bunch of killing going on, mm -hmm. you know, and your mind is adjusted to that because it's a survival mechanism. You have to be able to think like they are thinking. You know, so now what happens when when your counselor says, you know what, hey, man, we just got some good news from the court. They just dropped your case. You're going home. Now, you've been in prison for 15 years. Yeah. And we're going to parole. You're paroling in the morning. Uh, well, you know, there's a halfway house. I know we didn't you know, we didn't find anything, but there's a halfway house located here. You're not going to be on any parole or anything, but this is a place you can go. And you go check into a halfway house. And lo, lo and behold, you're a black guy. You know, halfway house is in East L.A. You go over to East L.A., you check into the halfway house, you know, there's nothing but Southsiders in there, and you're like, oh, wow, okay. You know, I just left <laughs> Folsom, and, you know, it was it was cracking. You know, it was on and cracking. What, what am I going to do? You know, I'm, I'm here, and these, uh, it looked like I might even know that guy, you know. And, and, and nobody says anything, but you can feel the tension. Mm -hmm. Then the next day, you know, you, you, you know, you go down to the unemployment office, you know, and that's in East L.A., and you go to an employment office, man, and you, and you see a few more guys that you may have seen, you know, in Folsom you know, on the main line, you know. It's like, whoa, man, I hope they don't notice me. So immediately these survival mechanisms kick in and you back up against the wall. You know, mm -hmm. you back up against the wall, you're looking real, real funny, you're looking weird, you know, because now you're out here and you're using these same, uh, these same traits that you develop while you're incarcerated. Yeah. And lo and behold, somebody says something. He says something to you. You say something to him. Uh, they call the police. And guess what? 
You're going back to prison. You're going back to prison. Mm-hmm. Just, just that simple. You know, so yeah, me and you, we go to we go to Starbucks. Someone bumps into us. Yeah, excuse me. How you doing? Yeah, thank have you. a good day. And we come out with those uh, antisocial uh, character traits. Uh, and then someone bumps into you, you think they're disrespecting you, and and you know you gotta you gotta call them on it. And if he says this, I'm gonna say this. And those are the traits you develop yeah, in terrible. prison. Well, the mm-hmm. idea with, with post incarceration syndrome was to develop those, or at least to make you aware that they exist. Because a lot of times, in most cases. We didn't even know they existed. Right. Yeah, we just went on through our daily lives and had no idea that they existed. Exactly. So once we figured that part out, now it's about, okay, now you understand, you know, what your, what your traits are. We know how, if we do get out, we can stay out if we do these things, or at least we have a chance. Right. Uh, now, the, the next phase was, let's get into BPH prep. BPH prep was to get you ready for the board of parole hearings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean get you ready, you know, what from, from – uh, uh, making sure that relapse prevention plan was on point to helping you create a portfolio. We even had a system where you could purchase the portfolios through us. Uh, our, our, our sponsor would, you know, we would take a trust withdrawal. They would take the money off your I books. Uh, Heinley would go and purchase all the portfolios. We'd bring them all in, and then we'd show you how to set them up. Uh, in addition to that, you know, during our seminars, you know, because we would have these BPH seminars, and we would bring in five attorneys, you know, and each attorney would get up and they would have a 15, 20-minute presentation. While that attorney is presenting, we had tables set up where you can go as an individual and walk over and sit down and have a conversation with an attorney about what it was you needed to do to prepare for the board. Yeah, that was unheard of back then. Yeah, so, you know, the, the thing is we needed to get it from sources that were credible, sources that said, you know, I've been, I do this as a profession. Let me tell you what, what they want and what we're not doing. Which really kind of gave us, you know, the insight on, okay, this is what you need to focus on going into the yeah. board of parole hearings. And sometimes we didn't get it right away, and sometimes we stuck to our, you know, to our guns and said, you know what, uh, you know, I, I didn't do it, man, that's it. You know, I'm not, I'm not admitting anything, you know, I, I didn't do it. Yeah. And you go in there and you get denied and you try to figure out, well, why did I get denied? Well, because, you know, you, you still haven't changed your story. You still haven't changed, you still haven't fallen on your sword, as, as you would say. Uh, and, and then after that, uh, you come back, and then we had BPH denial management because yeah. you, you went through something, you yeah. know, when you got denied. We all went through something when we got yeah, denied. Yeah, to know you've been in 20 years, and then you're gonna now you need to come back in five years. Yeah, man, I got another five years after 20. Yeah, and you got to tell your family, and you got to tell your family. And, you know, and, and that's even yeah. you get used to being in there, and it's worse to have to call them and say no. They said no, and I'm, it's five years, seven years, three years, and that. That is the worst feeling in the world when you have a mother, you know, who's been waiting on you for, 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 for 25 years. You know, yeah. you, you have a wife, you know, you have kids, you know, you have. But it, for me, that was the main reason. I said, I cannot put my mom through more years of this. No. She was getting tired of visiting me. You know, I just can't. I don't want to come here no more. No. And, uh, you know, they at times treated her like if she was incarcerated. And um, she just I just don't want to come. And, 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 and my mom loved me. She knew I was ready. And I said, I got to get this at the first shot. And I remember you telling me, you know, whatever, whatever, with, with, there's an old language, criminogenic needs, whatever your needs were to get out, do take everything in that area. And then when you told me that, I said, I'm going to do 10 times as much in yeah. each of those areas because I need to get this date at the first shot. And I was in there yeah. seven and a half hours. So yeah. they left no stone unturned. You were the first, first person that I knew that got found suitable on the first shot. Yeah. At their initial. Nobody does that. Yeah, that was like, that was like amazing. That was, you know, and in fact, you know, when when you did that, you know, everything in Avatar said, you know what, we're on the right page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, we're on the right page. So, 
But but now BPH and Isle Management, man, uh, uh, because we're going through something, we needed somebody to talk to. We needed to be able to to talk about what it was we needed to do to get back up and go back in there again. Because it was really about you know what figuring out what we did wrong. Let's we're gonna hit it again. You know if I got denied a year in one year, I'm going back yeah. and I'm gonna knock on that door and anything. Any concerns that they had at that time, that was what we needed to be prepared to talk about. Yep. And that's what BPH and management was. Now, the fifth uh, leg of the program, uh, we brought in a little bit late. But this is just evident of, 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 of how ingenuity really comes right. into play. Uh, the fifth level uh, of, of Avatar was uh, alternatives of family violence. Now, keep in mind that that... that when you talk about homicides and violent crimes, you know, uh, uh, a large percentage of it, I won't quote any numbers because I don't know what they are today, but I know a while back more than 60% of violent crimes were committed against spouses, against people we love, mm-hmm. particularly when you start talking about murder uh, uh, or homicide. I, I, I hate to use that word, or, or homicide. Uh, and uh, the problem was, was there was no way to address it. You know, because, you know, if, if, if we had someone in our group, you know, because I would have guys come to me and say, man, you know, I go in and they tell me I need to do, you know, a, 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 a domestic violence, domestic violence, you know, and, and I, I, there is no domestic violence here, you know, and they were right. Yeah, there wasn't. There, there was no domestic violence. You can go to your. It's still rare. Yeah, yeah, you can go to the psych and have a conversation with them, but there was still no, no domestic violence. And, and I said, you know what, we need to come up with a domestic violence program. And lo and behold, <laughs> this is how God works. I had a cousin who was in there with me, you know, and uh, uh, he had a domestic violence case. Uh, he had a domestic violence case. And, and with his domestic violence case, he actually ordered the alternative to family violence book. Uh, but he never took the course. So when I saw the book, I, I said, okay, you know what? This is something that we can do. So I walked over, talked to Heinley, said, hey, Heinley, we need to implement this into Avatar. And he said, okay, what do we need to do? And uh, we found a sponsor up in the education department where we can have the area secluded so no one, you know, because if people found out about, you know, your case, they, you know, people were quick to judge. So we put them up. Uh, we put them up in the education department. We, we got a really cool sponsor out of the medical department. And uh, we start focusing on uh, domestic violence which was amazing. And a lot of guys started to go home after that. Uh, I didn't get to see it all because I, I, you know, after creating the program, I think I may have went to five or six groups and then I I went home, but uh, it was amazing. Well, after you, after you went home in 2012, I mean, I didn't go home until 2019, 21 years, you did 26 years, you know, after you went home, Avatar to me kicked it off in terms of the specific needs that you need to get, found suitable to go home and to stay free. Since then, not only in Soledad, you know, where I was at 18 years and you were there a long time, but all across the state, probably in every prison now, wherever there's somebody sentenced to life, there are some types of BPH prep groups, uh, parole readiness groups, relapse prevention groups. Mm -hmm. Everybody's doing it now. But you were one of the trailblazers. And I say thank you. Um, Thank you because um, if – it wasn't for you having that vision and putting action behind that vision, then thousands and thousands of lifers wouldn't be home today. Yeah. And you're a trailblazer. And uh, on behalf of all of our brothers and friends and, and sisters that have gone home, I want to say thank you 
on our behalf. And uh, we know that Avatar is uh, still in, in the prison system. It's going to be going to all uh, all the prisons uh, pretty soon here. And um, it, I mean, it, it has that perfect uh, method for f- helping you to get found suitable for parole. And I just want to speak to the audience real quick. You got a couple minutes here. And I would say, if you're in prison or you have a loved one in prison and they're sentenced to life, um, there's hope that they can go home. I don't care if they've been in 20, 25 years, 30 years, like. Like Cornelius shared, I don't care if you had 15 write-ups, 20 write-ups, you've been to the shoe. I've known everybody and everybody under the sun. With No matter what the crime, they can go home. And if they're sharing, if you're sharing that story or you're, you hear your loved one sharing the story of, well, they don't have this there or they don't have that there or we can't do this there because they don't, the state don't provide it. Forget what the state provides. What are you going to do to get yourself home? Order that book, Alternatives to Surviving Violence. Order Overcoming Emotions That Destroy to Deal with Your Anger Management. And order order al- alternatives, to, uh, you know, uh, alternatives to Violence Project books. Order anything and everything that addresses whatever it is that got you there so you can understand why you did what you did. Um, get healing in that area. Get remorseful in that area. Ex- express empathy and prepare yourself for freedom, a freedom that you'll stay free and not come back. So there, there, you got to really have a no excuses mindset. There's no excuse. If it's, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. Okay. And, uh, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, yeah I do. Uh, really, really quick, Rich. I just want to, I just want to say this, uh, you know, uh, developing these relationships and programs, you know, in prison is, is just one part of it, but I really want to give a shout out to, to, to all of the men and women who come home and they keep doing the work. That's right. You know, so you yourself, Sam Lewis, look, man, I, I am so proud of him. Really, you know, I, I sat down That's with right. I, day after day after day, uh, program after program, you know, and, and he came and he never he's never stopped. You know, Juan Greer, you know, uh, uh, and I can go on with, with a few more. You know, they've come home. Dwayne McElway, slow, you know, he you know, he has two transitional homes Uh uh, uh, there's there's just quite a few of us who came home and said, you know what, I need to figure out a way to help them when they get here. And kudos, That's kudos right. to you, kudos. You know, I, I just, uh, I, I, you know, when I came home, you know, my mindset was, was pretty much the same, but I, I, needed, I needed to eat. Uh, and then after I ate, I wanted to live, you know. Uh, and I made, I made a choice, you know, to... to dabble in it as much as I can to help as much as I can, but not to stop living, you know, and nobody can be mad at you for that. You know, that's, that's, if that's your choice, it's fine. Nobody can be mad at you for that uh, because you deserve to live. When you did that much time, live, travel, uh, spend, fall in love, do, do the things that are going to make you happy because for so many years we had to be happy in the darkest place, you know, and you don't have to be happy in the dark anymore. That's you can right. be happy right where you are you know so with, with that said man kudos uh keep doing the work uh, love you guys uh if <laughs> you ever right. need me uh dm me or you know most of you have my number uh, i'm willing to chat about any of it thanks That's rich right. thank you thank you for listening to the prison post a production of the crop organization we'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice so please join us you can listen to the prison post on all major podcasting platforms Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.